our Savior is born. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. Again, and thank you so much for tonight and for your word, for the coming of your son Jesus. Whether we have heard this story for the first time tonight or for the 10,000th time, Lord, speak to us, touch us, change us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, again, good evening. Uh, thank you so much for the honor and privilege it is to share God's Word with you tonight. Doubly so for those of you who got double Stevie Yates today. Um, please pray for uh, our senior pastor, Jimmy Agin, who uh, deeply misses you all and wanted to be here and also deeply did not want to give all of you COVID. So um, here we are. Um, thankfully, Holy Spirit does His work instead of me. Hopefully, we're going to go there. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, uh, it is a, a common story in many respects still in our culture, but I don't want to take anyone for granted. So let's spend the first couple of minutes of our time together just talking through what is happening here. Because Matthew um, is one book or letter um, it's kind of a little bit of a mixture of both. It's a letter as if I were going to not simply send one greeting to some of my friends, but maybe I would send a greeting, and within that greeting I would put a very, very long account of my summer vacation or of the last couple of years of my life. Almost like some of you who send, I don't know, maybe if any of you do, I've received some of these over the years, a family letter once a year where you actually document everything that's happened and send that out. Um, it's a great practice. And Matthew is kind of like that. So is Luke. But they're not the same letter and they're not from the same family. And so when we think of the Christmas story, we usually think of it as kind of one sandwich together um, with all of the details put in. Um, but Matthew didn't share all of those details. Luke didn't share all of those details. So when we come to the story of Jesus being born here in the book of Matthew, following a long genealogy of Jesus, we literally just have 
the disciple Matthew saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, like you don't know anything else yet about it. And Matthew, unlike what we commonly do and start with talking about Mary, Matthew begins and focuses on Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. We see that uh, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Now, in some ways, we don't really have this category today, although I think if you will talk to some people who are engaged and you talk in today's world, the world of booking things a year in advance and scheduling all the things, sending out all the save the dates and whatnot, in some ways, being engaged is pretty hard to break off. Um, and engagement is a big deal. Betrothal in Israelite society was kind of that plus. You were engaged, but you were kind of considered husband and wife already. But you weren't technically husband and wife yet. You had not consummated your marriage. You were not considered by society to be one flesh. So you can imagine Joseph's alarm when his young bride, Mary, who he has not yet consummated their marriage with, comes to him and tells him that she is pregnant. Now, Matthew does not record whether or not Mary had a conversation filling in all the details we know from the book of Luke, filling in the fact that an angel had visited Mary and told her that she was going to have a child, told her this child was from the Holy Spirit, told her about Jesus. Whether or not she did tell Joseph this or not, let's be honest, it is far-fetched. And I don't mean that with any disrespect towards the deep-seated Word of God that we're about to talk about, but it is far-fetched to seem as an excuse for why you are pregnant and why your to-be husband should not be alarmed by this. And so Scripture says that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, uh, we need to love on Joseph for a minute here. Again, just trying to explain some of these, these passages to you. What we're referring to here as divorce um, can seem like Joseph doesn't care about Mary, and thus Joseph wants to get out of Dodge, get out of a bad marriage before it starts. This is actually not the case. Yes, Joseph does not want to be with a woman who hypothetically at least, has cheated on him just prior to getting married to him. But the penalty for such adultery in Israelite society was public stoning to death. And so actually when the scripture says Joseph is going to be divorcing her quietly, he's literally going to find out some way of explaining some other flaw about Mary that will somehow bring the union to a close without society finding out, and so thus actually saving Mary's life. So just so you understand here, we're not talking about a mean or deadbeat dad when we talk about Joseph. Of course, just like with Mary, an angel does visit Joseph, this time in a dream, and likewise tells Joseph about the identity of the child in Mary's womb, who he will be, and a little bit more even so, what 
he will do, which is to save people from their sins. And so because of this, the story becomes flipped. And suddenly where Joseph began as suspect, trying to be nice, but to end things quietly, he's actually now stuck with the opposite perspective. He now has to figure out how to, in fact, live with this quietly. Because the world is very soon going to find out that Mary is pregnant. And either everyone will have to believe the child is his and that there was some, basically, timing infidelity, or the child is not his, and he is, at least according to the customs of the time, a fool. It's important to know that Jesus enters into that kind of reality. Sometimes the Holy Family can be you know, put before you in a beautiful nativity scene, and everything's nice and wonderful and beautiful. And it is nice and wonderful and beautiful in so many ways, but it is very much not kind of the gold-encrusted, lit-up thing that we sometimes can think of. It was very broken. It was very wrought with pain, with uncertainty, with confusion. But there were a couple of things that were certain. Joseph knows. Actually, Joseph even knows something that we don't find in Mary's account. Joseph knows what the child's name will be. His name will be Jesus because this child will save his people from their sins. And then afterwards, Matthew adds, kind of as a subscript, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. No. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when I was growing up, um, I've, I was raised as a, a Christian believer. I've, I've known Jesus a very long time, but, but I remember struggling through um, whenever there was a seeming contradiction, really a blatant contradiction in Scripture, I struggled. Because I did really believe, and, and still do believe, the Bible to be God's Word. And I also was in sixth grade English. So, if sixth grade English Steve could notice a mistake that bad that Matthew says one thing and two sentences later as his supporting text says something completely different. Houston, we have a problem. Or maybe we don't. In fact, totally, we don't. In fact, even more, it should actually be a a piece of, of biblical understanding, if you or I are ever reading our Bibles and we come across a seeming contradiction that is so apparent, Matthew wasn't stupid either. The contradiction is there for a reason. In fact, it is the thing. Out of all the details that, that really we think will shine in this text, it's actually what Matthew is highlighting here. By giving us such apparent a contradiction between these two names, what Matthew's actually doing is telling us there's a very, very important relationship between them. 
making them almost synonymous. So let's ask, what do these two names mean? You see a picture here of Mary and Joseph from the Haggai Sophia, where Jesus was actually born, or at least the large, beautiful church on top of the completely nowhere place he was born. We find these two names. The first one is Jesus. Jesus is a Greek word. Um, It's a Greek form of a much more common word. Some of you might have this name, Joshua, or it's more Hebraic and less common English version, Jehoshua. Both of them mean the same thing, though, Joshua or Jehoshua. God saves. God saves. That idea of Jah or Jeha being the same as Yahweh, the name of God. God saves. The second one is likewise a Greek word, Emmanuel, though in Hebrew it's spelled almost exactly the same except with an E, Emmanuel, El being another name for God that we find in the Old Testament. And so Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. So together you get God saves, God is our salvation, God is salvation, and God is with us. Basically meaning what is the definition of the salvation of God to the Israelite people that Matthew wants everyone to know the definition of salvation is proximity. Salvation of God is about God being with his people. Now, this is actually fairly common in the Old Testament. I want to walk you through that in just a minute. But I think it's actually very much a, a hard thing for us to understand. Just proximity itself, much less the idea of salvation being defined as proximity. We live in a world, right, where because of technology, in some ways we can be anywhere at any time. I mean, Zoom is the closest thing to teleportation that we have ever seen. As much as some of us after 2020 are, are you know, absolutely sick of it, it has become like things like Xeroxing um, a, a verb. You don't even have to actually be using Zoom anymore to Zoom with somebody. It's just a thing we do. We live in an age where travel is just as easy, where instead of going somewhere for Christmas, um, and this will be the decade in which we visit that state or that town, and then we won't see you again for many, many years, you will instead perhaps visit two, three, four, ten different family members and holiday parties in one season. My wife Chrissy is uh, the person responsible for almost all of the musical tastes I have that I would not feel embarrassed to share with you. And uh, she loves an indie band called the Oh Hellos that have a beautiful, beautiful Christmas album. This year, however, the Oh Hellos came out with a sequel to said Christmas album. And the second one in cheek and sarcasm is only rivaled by the beauty of its first one. And they have a song on this album entitled, I'll Be Home for Christmas if I can be there. I'd like to read you a couple of these lyrics for a minute. Oh, I'll be home for Christmas, if I can be there. Oh, I wouldn't want to miss it, 
if I'm free this year. I'll be home for Christmas if I've got the time. Set a place for me, and maybe I'll swing by. I'll be home for Christmas, maybe a few days late. Travel's just a little cheaper if you can pick your own dates. I haven't checked the books, so I can't say just yet, because there's a hundred parties I already can't forget. And I know it's only been a minute, that I'm only halfway in it, but I hope this still shows that you have been on my mind. We're in an age where relationship actually doesn't mean nearly as much as it used to. Right? Especially if relationship can be defined by proximity, by time, by sweat and blood and tears, by the, the type of relationship that only happens when you live on top of someone else and you just do life together. We live in an age where, for instance, the average 20-something has 10 jobs and lives in 12 different places before age 30. Try having friends if you live in 12 places before the age of 30. Try having a church. Try having roots. Try having anything. And many in my generation and younger, because we have grown up in that, really actually just see it as a way of life. And I wonder sometimes if that way of life the to and fro, the bouncing back and forth, the hecticness that we all experience is actually very detrimental to our spiritual walk with Jesus. Because if Jesus is, well, let's face it, if he is a contact on our iPhone that we can dial up when we need, then there isn't necessarily a sense that he is always with us that he needs to always be with us. This is very, very different, as I said, than the perspective of Scripture. In fact, in some ways, you can actually read the entire Old Testament as a conversation about God's proximity to humanity. We start off in a garden, and in the garden, God walks with Adam. We think of all of the other fascinating things about the Garden of Eden, that it's perfect, that there's no sin, that they're naked, all of the things from various vacation Bible school pictures. But actually, the biggest deal in the Garden is that God walks there. Why do we know this? Because God doesn't destroy the Garden when Adam and Eve sin. The Garden was never the point. He kicks them out. The great loss of the Garden of Eden, the great loss of Genesis chapter 3, is that Adam and Eve don't get to hang out with God anymore. That there's something in between them. And again, all of the rest of Scripture plays that out. Abraham sits alone until God speaks to him, and then God walks with him through the desert. Moses sits tending sheep until a burning bush happens. Moses saves Israel, and then we see not just Israel wander through the desert, we see a cloud or a column of fire literally leading them through the desert. And every time they stop, 
They've built this, this box where they put the Ten Commandments and some other things in, and they've built a tent to go over it. Well, that tent is called a tabernacle. Tabernacle is the Hebrew word for dwelling. Literally, God physically dwelling with them. Scripture keeps on going, and eventually they build a temple instead of just the tabernacle, and what fills that temple but fire and cloud, God still with them. When the temple is destroyed and they're taken off to exile, what does God do with his prophets? He says, you've messed up, but I'm still with you. The temple's not. The armies aren't. I'm still with you. And in 400 years of silence, how does God speak? He breaks the silence by saying, Emmanuel, I am with you. What are the implications for a people who struggle to be present anywhere, who struggle to be proximate to anybody at all for any length of time? What are the implications for a God who comes to us it says, I am going to be with you. I think there are a couple. There are a couple that I think about a lot. The first one is this. There's a fascinating theologian who spends a lot of work in Hebrew who looks at this word, Jesus, Joshua, Jehoshua says it, it is not at all translated wrong here. It is indeed God saves. He says, you know, the unique thing about Hebrew is uh, punctuation is a lot iffier than it is in Greek. So we read God saves. But he says, just as likely, the name Jesus is a cry. God save. God, I'm drowning. Will you save me? God, I'm alone. Will you save me? One of the great implications of this listless culture that we are a part of is that we have tried to become our own people. If I can't, if I, if I don't have a family if I don't have friends, if I'm only contractually related to my work and I've only worked there for six months and obviously I'm only going to work there for another year because otherwise my salary stalls out and I need to go somewhere else because this is how the world works. If that's how things are going to go, then I don't have anybody else and I need to build myself up. I need to be the American man, the American woman, the one who doesn't need anybody. Scripture says, what does it look like instead to come to a place at the end of yourself where you say, God, if you're there, save. God, if you're listening, I can't be everything. I need someone else. The philosopher Charles Taylor speaks of our culture describes this idea of our listlessness. And he says, what's interesting is, he uses a word, he says, 
it is as if we're haunted by this fact. Even the people who are seemingly our best in the world at standing up for themselves, at needing no one else, they get old. They look around. They need someone. They get sick. They look around. They need someone. They get lonely. They get tired. Need is a part of the human condition we have never been able to get rid of. And that finiteness is by design, God says. The first truth of the names of Jesus Matthew presents here is that we don't have to keep fighting as if if we stop, we'll drown. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. In lifeguarding school, they tell you if the person is struggling and struggling and struggling and trying and trying and trying, it's actually the most dangerous moment to try to save someone. Why? Because in their flailing to try to save themselves, that's when they drown you. The craziness of Christmas is that it offers up to us the most absurd story that a foolish man and his at least publicly adulterous wife have a baby and then that baby is offered up by a bunch of ragtag fishermen as a man who dies in a most gruesome way for the sins of the world. And yet that is what is given to us as the hope of the end of ourselves when we can't make it any other way. What do we have? Bethlehem. That little baby. I would offer up this, and it's where I want to go with Emmanuel, God with us. The downside of this proximate argument, this belief that, okay, maybe I'll get to the end of myself and I'll cry out to God like a you know, genie in a lamp, like a you know, tax income check that I'm hoping will come in, like the one call to my parents, even though I haven't talked to them in forever, that says, I need money, will you please Help me out. The thing that, that I think changes everything for us is that nobody hits rock bottom one time. You know your heart. I know mine. The human condition is actually one of not just single need, of continual need over and over and over again. No amount of goodwill or peace, no amount of community even, of unity, of good thoughts or feelings are enough to support us, even those of us who do believe that you can't just live a listless life and you need roots and you need community and you need home and you need all of these great, wonderful things. In fact, my heart is darker than that. My need is greater than that. So we're stuck, aren't we? 
if I can't make it on my own, so I need other people. But I can't even make it with other people because I'm too broken even for that. What is my hope? My hope is that these two names don't live alone. Literally the way that you can interpret Matthew 1 is us crying, God, save. And God saying, I'm here. It is Christmas Eve night. I said some of this this morning, but I'll say it again because I'm feeling it again. Um, I'm exhausted. I'm not just exhausted because I've preached two services. I'm exhausted because it's Christmas Eve. And family have come in town, and travel and packing is coming. Presents happen. Kids will laugh, and kids will cry, and everything in between. I will have wonderful conversations with in-laws. I will have difficult conversations with in-laws. I will have great memories with my kids. I will be the darkest version of myself in the world with little sleep in someone else's bed with my kids. Ultimately, I don't just need Jesus once. I need him all the time. The beauty of Christmas is that we do not leave Christmas behind. It's in fact probably the danger of Christmas. That because we celebrate it once a year, it is easy to literally and figuratively package it up, put it in a spot in your basement, and then pull it back out next year. But the reality is this. If your own need haunts you enough, is frequent enough, is exhausting enough to bring you to a place multiple times, of knowing that you need more than yourself. God's there. No matter how big or small you believe that need to be, God is there. God is not there in the way a genie is there. He does not give you what you need and then leave. He is not there in an annoying sense that says, I am going to seem like I join a cult and kind of just walk away from everything that's going on in my life. Guys, actually in the grit and dirt with you. Which is why when Jesus comes, we don't see Jesus floating down from heaven on a cloud. We see a Jesus who was born and dealt with an afterbirth. A Jesus who was cold. A Jesus who possibly had to learn to nurse. A Jesus who definitely got sick. A Jesus who felt pain and rejection. And at least even in a childlike sense, fear. A Jesus who needed his own father to tell him, I'm here. So what do we do with this? Again, it's Christmas Eve. So many other things that we move on to in our life, in our week, in our day. I would offer this. Because Scripture does not let the proximity of God to you 
get neatly packaged up and put in a basement? What will it mean for you this year to think about your relationship with Jesus as one of proximity? What does it mean when Jesus is with you at your worst and he's not leaving you? What does it mean when Jesus is with you at your most joyous? Does that really mean God sometimes celebrates us? What does it mean when God is there at your most stressful? I can at least say this to you. Tom's actually about to read this in just a moment. When another apostle, John, begins to talk about Jesus, he doesn't give us a Christmas story. But he does say in John 1.14 that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt with us. And one day, when everything is done and made new, just like how the, the garden was not about the beautiful trees or the great fruit, The picture of heaven we get, the emphasis, the highlighter of all of the book of Revelation is not gold gates, singing angels, choirs. It's not even family members and good company. In fact, it looks very little in some ways like all of the beautiful trappings that we celebrate Christmas with. It instead is this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has all passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. The hope of Christmas is that God has come to earth to be with us and he isn't going anywhere. Let's pray. Jesus, this evening I pray for those of us who are tired and needy. I pray for those of us who are wanting, who are longing, who are lonely, who are hungry. I pray for those of us who are weary in the relational sense those of us who have a long flight to catch after this, a house to clean up, things to get ready, and who know that none of those things ultimately satisfy us. Would you satisfy us tonight, Lord God? Not again in a saccharine sweet way that brings back nostalgic feelings of old, but in a triumphal way that says, 
And so we scream out to you of our need in every facet of our life. You are there. And one day, you will make all things new. Amen.